Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of God. Amen, church. Our God is a great and awesome and powerful God. What a time. What a sweet time we've just had of worship. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the foot of the throne in praise of our glorious Savior. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men to hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 3. Jesus lived a life of rejection. He was rejected by his own family, by his own people, and by his own world. But because of that rejection, Jesus attained the unattainable. In our study through Mark, We've been talking about Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. He's been going to the temple. He's there in Jerusalem. He's going every day. This is the final week on earth, his final week on earth, Passion Week. And we've seen him reject things. We've seen him reject the temple structure that is the way the temple was set up. It was segregated according to ethnicity and gender. We've seen Jesus reject the temple services because instead of being a place of prayer, they become a place of legalism. And last week, we saw that he was rejecting the temple leaders, the Sanhedrin, because they were rejecting him. And they had led the people, that is the Jews, away from God instead of toward God. And that was the concept that we introduced last week, and it's the concept that we're continuing in this week and will be continuing in for several weeks to come. Jesus is rejecting the temple leaders, but why? 
because they've rejected him. And we continue that this morning. We're going to see in the weeks to come that Jesus is in conflict with these religious leaders, and it all boils down to this, that they reject him, so he rejects them. Everything that the leaders do, and we'll see this, everything that they do is motivated by trying to get a reason to kill him. Everything they do, that's what they're after. They're rejecting him. He's rejecting them. So we're in the middle of this conflict. We just got finished with Jesus answering the Sanhedrin, the representatives that were there. He dodged their question. You may, under, you, may, you may remember he dodged their question about authority. And in that, he actually, in a roundabout way, gives them an answer to their question. And then Jesus goes into this parable. They spoke up last week. He's speaking up this week. Today, we start with this parable. And it, if, as we read it, we see that it's a natural outflow of the conflict from last week. This is an expansion of what we saw last week, the focus being on how God and Jesus have been rejected. Jesus takes that idea of being rejected and he shows them in this parable how he was rejected. So the first thing I want to do this morning, I want to work through this parable. I want to shine some light on what Jesus is saying here and then I want to go back and give you the points of the sermon so please follow along with me. I'm going to read Mark 12, 1 through 12 again. Follow along with me, and then I'm going to unpack this, and then we'll get to the points. So chapter 12, verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, they sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants sent to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I'm going to stop right there. You know, this is not the first time that we've seen Jesus teach in parables. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, we study that famous parable called the parable of the sower, perhaps better titled the parable of the soils. In fact, if you grew up in church, you know that parables were one of Jesus' favorite way of teaching. And just by way of reminder, a parable is a story that illustrates something. It's a story that illustrates something about life or something about eternity. It is a comparison or a simile. They are creative ways to illustrate truth. And they were very popular, not just with Jesus, but other rabbis at the time. Now, what's interesting about this parable? You see, parables were originally meant to hide the truth from people. Do you remember that? We studied that. In Mark chapter 4, after Jesus tells the parable, the disciples come to him and they say, why do you teach him parables? And what did Jesus say? He quotes from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. He says that 
They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Part of the reason Jesus taught in parables was to mask, to veil the truth. But we get to this parable, and it's not hidden. Verse 12 tells us that the religious leaders perceived that he had told the parable against him. And that word for perceived, that's not like, you know, suggested or maybe they wondered about it. No, it's the word to know. They knew. They knew what Jesus was saying. They knew he was saying the parable against him. This parable was not hidden. So what is the truth of this parable? Well, let's look at the different elements. What do we have here? We have a vineyard. We have an owner of the vineyard, we have tenants, we have servants, and we have a son. What do all these mean? Well, the vineyard represents Israel. Jesus uses the picture of a vineyard. He describes this owner that planted a vineyard, vineyard of grapes, and he built this this, um, structure that was very popular at the time with a wine press so that the grapes could be gathered and they would make wine. And all of that represents Israel... And the worship that Israel was meant to present to God. Now, the owner here is obviously God the Father. God the Father established Israel as his people. And we've read about that throughout the entire Old Testament. We see how God brought people up to establish his nation. He had a people. He wanted true worship from his people. And that's what the fruit represents in the parable. The fruit represents the true worship that his people were meant to bring him. The tenants here represent the religious leaders. They were those who were responsible for cultivating true worship among the people. Now, Jesus uses a typical practice of the day. This happened all the time, where an owner would set up a vineyard or set up a farm, and then he would lease it to farmers, and they would oversee the daily work of the farm, of the vineyard. The religious leaders were meant to oversee the worship of God. Now, the servants, the servants represent prophets, All throughout Israel's history, and if you've read the Old Testament, you know this, all throughout Israel's history, time and time again, they rebel against God. Over and over again, Israel rebels. They seek after other gods. They fail to follow the law and the prescribed worship that was supposed to happen. If you just read through the kings, we have David. He was a good king, absolutely. You have Solomon. He was almost a good king. He didn't end well. But then after Solomon, spoiler alert, it just goes downhill. Every now and then you have a good king pop up, but most of the kings of both Israel and Judah were evil, wicked, and rebellious kings. And time and time and time again, God sent prophets to proclaim a message of repentance. God warned them time and time again that he would send destruction on the people unless they repent. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, many, many, many others were sent to Israel to warn them of God's wrath if they continued in their sin. And most of the time, most of the time, the people of Israel did not listen. The last element we have here is that the owner of a vineyard has a son. Now, not surprisingly, the son represents the son. That one's easy. 
The Son in the parable represents God the Son, that is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And in the parable, by the way, he's called a beloved son. Perhaps you noticed that. That's the same description that's used of Jesus at his baptism when God spoke to him and said, this is my beloved son. It's the same language that's used in the transfiguration when God again says, this is my beloved son. So with those elements in place, we can unpack this parable. God sets up Israel, his nation. He sets it up to receive worship. Yes, there are other reasons why God set up Israel, but part of that was to receive worship. God had them build the tabernacle and later the temple as a system in place so Israel could worship God. God put priests in place to handle the business of worship. There were tasks and duties that had to be accomplished. There was teaching to do. There were sacrifices that needed to be oversaw. And all of that fell under the job description of the priests. But like I said earlier, what happened over and over again was a failure to follow God's law. A failure on the part of the priests to lead the people into worship. They got off serving other gods. They ignored the worship of Yahweh, so God sent prophets, the servants, in the parable. And so many times, the prophets in the Old Testament were rejected. The parable tells us that the servants were beaten and some were killed. In fact, if you look at verses 3, 4, and 5, there's a progression of violence. The first one they beat. The second one they struck on the head and treated shamefully. And the third they killed. And then we see over and over again, they would either beat or kill the servants. The prophets in the Old Testament underwent horrible treatment at times. Jeremiah was beaten and put into stocks. Zechariah was stoned. There is extra biblical evidence that that suggests Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and Habakkuk were all killed. In fact, Nehemiah 9.26 tells us, nevertheless... They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Finally, the owner sends his son, figuring they'll respect the heir. And here's the point, interestingly enough, here's the point where the parable turns from the past to the present in Jesus' day and then on to the future. The son comes to the vineyard, but he's treated like the servants. In fact, they figure if they kill him, they'll inherit the property or they can seize the property. So they kill the son, they toss him out of the vineyard, and this, of course, is a direct prediction of the death of Jesus. Jesus came to Israel, and the leaders rejected him and killed him. And the last thing that the parable predicts here is the ultimate judgment of God. The owner comes and destroys the tenants, and that is a picture of God's judgment. We could say this judgment happened in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. And at that point, the Jewish practices were done. You could not worship without a temple. They can't perform their worship rituals outlined in the law without it. It's God's judgment. What we have here in this parable as one commentator said, is a microcosm of the Old Testament spilling into the new. It's Israel's history in one short story, and the theme is rejection. Jesus is elaborating on this theme of rejection, and what we see here from this parable are three truths 
about rejection. Specifically, when I say rejection, just know I'm talking about rejecting Jesus. I'm not talking about rejection in general, but rejecting Jesus. Three truths about rejection. So here it is, your first point this morning, man's proclivity for rejection. Man's proclivity for rejection. What do we learn about rejection here in the text? We learn about man's proclivity for rejection. That is, man rejects God constantly. There is a universal truth here. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is one thing that every human being has in common. We all reject God. See, the parable is about the tenants, and the tenants represent the religious leaders, true enough. But the principle behind all that is this, mankind rejects God. Man in his current corrupt state will always reject God. There is nothing in us that naturally chooses God. He is holy. We are sinful. There is nothing naturally in us that chooses God. We cannot cross the chasm that separates a holy God from sinful man. We will always in our natural state choose God rejection. Why is that? Man's proclivity to rejection stems from this. It stems from what theologians call total depravity. And that refers to our current state of corruption due to sin. We are totally depraved because of sin. When Adam broke God's law and ate the fruit that he was forbidden to eat, he brought sin into the world and corrupted all of mankind. We are broken. We are depraved. We are unable to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law because of total depravity. Think of it this way. Like many of you, I have a laptop. Go Windows. My laptop runs on a processor that can reach speeds up to 3.5 gigahertz, and that was fast about seven years ago. Say I got a virus. This is hypothetical, not autobiographical. Say I got a virus, and it affected my processor speed so that it only ran at 90 megahertz. Suddenly, my patience is being tried. My frustration level is going through the roof as my laptop is crawling instead of running. Now, that... I know it's not a perfect picture, but it kind of captures this idea of total depravity. See, we were made to be one way. We were made to be perfect, to be able to naturally follow God, to naturally desire to God, to naturally worship Him and be passionate about Him. We were made to purely follow Him, never doubting, never sinning, but sin, like a virus, prohibits us from being able to worship him. We're now broken. We're now flawed. We seek self-glory instead of God's glory. Now, what do we do with this? Well, the point, man's proclivity for rejection, I mean, this is, that's a dark point. What do we do with that? What do we learn from that? We are the tenants. We are the tenants that constantly reject Jesus. What do we do with this? This seems hopeless. But you know, within that hopelessness, there is hope. Because if it were up to us to earn God's favor, we would be doomed. Even though we are depraved, even though we are hopeless, He is our hope. 
See, when you realize that there is nothing in us that can earn favor with God, then suddenly we realize, I can't depend on me. I have to depend on something else. I have to depend on someone else. So what do we do with this? We recognize our proclivity to reject God. And now, this is easy to think of when we think of unbelievers, of course. You know, of course, they reject God. They, they haven't embraced Him as Savior. But, you know, I shared this last week. I'm going to share it again. We can reject God even as Christians. We can refuse Him certain areas of our lives that He wants to grow and develop us. You know, as Christians, we have not rejected Him as Savior, but we've rejected Him as Lord over certain areas in our life. Just think about the areas in your life that you know God has challenged you and you have bucked. That's a rejection of him as Lord in that area of your life. We still wrestle with the flesh. We still wrestle with the tendencies to follow our own way instead of God. So let me urge you to recognize where that is in your life. Recognize those areas that you naturally want to reject God and then respond. Respond with submission. Confess that pride. Submit humbly to him. And that's going to look different from all of us because we all struggle in different areas. But take an honest evaluation of your heart and ask God, where in your life are you still rejecting his work and then respond with humble submission to what he wants you to do? That's the first thing. This parable shows us man's proclivity to rejection. Secondly, it shows us God's gracious response to rejection. It does. It shows us God's gracious response to our rejection. How many times did the owner of the vineyard send servants to get fruit from the tenants? We're not even told. Time and time and time again, he sends servants, sends servant after servant after servant, even though they they're mistreated and even killed, he continues to send servants. Now, the original listeners of Jesus' parable, they would have thought, this owner's crazy. Why is he doing this? No owner of a vineyard would act like this. He might send one or two, and after that, he's going to bring his judgment. Why is this tenant doing it over and over and over again? And maybe we might think that, or maybe you were thinking that as you read the parable, but let me say, instead of questioning the owner's actions, be grateful for them because they represent a truth about our great God that he is gracious. Grace is the only thing that can explain the owner's action, and grace is the only thing that can explain God's patience with us. Just as these tenants constantly rejected the servants, so we constantly reject God. We just talked about that, but instead of God condemning us, instead of him punishing us, instead of him destroying us, he is gracious. God's grace is is an amazing, mind-blowing quality. If not for His grace, we would not be here. What is grace? Let's define grace real quick. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. It's receiving what we don't deserve. It's, it's, It's different than mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Think about this. If your neighbor, great time of year for this, if your neighbor raked up all his leaves and then maliciously dumped them on your yard, and you had the opportunity to do the same, but you didn't, that's mercy. Whereas if your neighbor raked up all his leaves, dumped them on your yard, and then you went and mowed his yard, 
That's grace. Receiving what we don't deserve. In terms of God's grace, we are given what we don't deserve. Love, forgiveness, His Holy Spirit, peace, family, His Word, joy. We could go on and on. All that we have in Christ is because of His grace. Wayne Grudem, in his ginormous theology book, writes this, Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Now, we can break this down a little bit further. We can break grace down into a couple of categories here. There's common grace and there's irresistible grace. God, though the world rejects Him, constantly displays common grace. Did you know that? Every single day, God is constantly displaying common grace. Every believer and unbeliever benefits from common grace. And some examples would be just simply the world we live in. We as human enjoy a planet that provides for us. Yes, it is cursed, but the earth does not produce only thorns. It produces what we need to survive. Matthew 5.45 reads, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God provides for both the just and the unjust. He gives us what we need to survive, even down to every breath we take. Every breath is a gift from God. That is common grace. Irresistible grace is God's relentless pursuit of those who are truly His. Irresistible grace is laid out through God's plan of salvation. He provides the way in which man is saved, but God doesn't just provide it. God doesn't just lay out the plan of salvation. God pursues us with it. God pursues us. Remember earlier I quoted Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Left to ourselves, we would utterly reject God, even with salvation in motion. If Jesus had died and rose again and the message of the gospel was out there, even as it is, but God didn't pursue, no one would accept it. Someone say, show me a verse on that. Ah, good. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even God. We would never pursue God, so he pursues us. That's irresistible grace. Now, it's not irresistible grace in the sense that we do not have a choice. Follow me on this, okay? We do have a choice. We make a voluntary choice to follow God's offer of salvation, but we couldn't even do that if he didn't pursue us. In other words, we can resist God's grace up to a point. We can reject Him up to a point, but irresistible grace is God's relentless pursuit of us. It means He will overcome our resistance. And praise God, He does. It's irresistible in the sense that God will not stop in pursuing us and working in us to bring about a favorable response. John Piper writes this, The doctrine of irresistible grace means that God is sovereign and can conquer all resistance when He wills. Daniel 4.35 reads, 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign. God is gracious. And God responds to our rejection with overwhelming grace. Think about it. Most of humanity, most of humanity is vehemently rejecting him right now. Most of humanity is rejecting him right now. They deny his existence or they deny his goodness or his justice or his power or they chalk him up to being one way among many ways. But most of planet earth is rejecting God and yet he does not annihilate them. The earth is still here. People are still living their lives, either oblivious of their rejection or they're aware of it and they don't care. And God responds continually with grace. And he, displo- and he deploys his servants. Still today, he deploys his servants again and again and again to share his message of salvation. Just as his sending of the prophets in the Old Testament, God sends his church. God sends his church to a desperate and dying world to declare this same message that the prophet said, repent and be saved or else suffer destruction. Now, what do we do with all this? First, let me challenge you to evaluate this. Evaluate this. Are you a recipient merely of his common grace or are you a recipient of his irresistible grace? Have you enjoyed only what the earth provides? Do you wake up every day and go about your life heedless of the many gifts God gives you right down to each breath? Are you unaware of him? Have you received Christ as your personal savior? Have you tasted beyond common grace to his irresistible grace? Have you received his gracious offer offer of salvation? And if you have not, don't leave here till you do. And let me just extend this to those online. If you're watching online and you have not tasted of the goodness of God's irresistible grace, now's the time. The message is the same now as it was in the Old Testament, repent, which means to turn from your sin. Now, sin is ultimately the choice to do life your way. Yes, sin is the bad things that we do, absolutely. But ultimately, sin is the choice to do life my way instead of God's way. If you don't know God, that means you're putting something in his place. You're making life choices for you and not for him. And to be saved, repent of that. Stop making life about you and make it about him. Turn and receive him now. The bad news, we're all sinners. Sinners die and go to hell. But the good news is Jesus took that penalty on the cross. And if you trust what he did when he died on that cross, that was payment from your sin. If you trust in that as Jesus is your substitute, then when you die, you will be with him forever and ever in eternity. And let me ask you this. Won't you do that today? There could be someone right now that has not done that sitting here. There could be someone online watching right now that hasn't done that. If that's you, come grab me after church. If you're watching online and that's you, contact our church and someone will get back with you. But don't leave without tasting the goodness of God's irresistible grace. 
For those of you who have, for those of you who know, for those of you who believe, for those of you whose irresistible grace has pursued you, what does this mean for you? It means God's never going to give up on you. God's irresistible grace means he's going to keep working and working and working in your heart, purifying it from the many impurities. And my friends, we know I have them, you have them, many impurities in our lives. But my encouragement is this, God will never forsake you. His irresistible grace means he will pursue you and continue to work on you. Our response is simply this, let him Let him work on you. Each person is being worked on by God. Let him work on you. Submit to his work in your life. Whatever you need to release, release. Whatever you need to get rid of, get rid of it. Wherever you need help in your life, ask him for help and trust that he's doing the work. We're looking, and this is the second week in a row we're looking at this. We're looking at the topic of rejection. We've seen man's proclivity for rejection, God's gracious response to rejection, and now this, the ultimate outcome of rejection. The ultimate outcome of rejection. God is gracious, yes, but his grace is not indefinite. God's grace lasts so much longer than yours and mine ever would, yes. But even God's grace has a limit. He is patient. But his patience will come to an end. And we see this in verse 9. I'm going to call your attention to verse 9. Jesus asks, after he's told this parable, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, the original hearers of Jesus' parable would think, it's about time. That would have been on their minds, and maybe you thought the same thing, at least until we saw that the owner's patience represents God's patience and grace. But God's grace is not indefinite. He will come and destroy the tenants. He will come and destroy the tenants. It will happen. I said earlier that this happened specifically when the temple and the Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 AD. After centuries of God sending prophets to warn Israel, after sending his beloved son to his own nation, they continually rejected him till his wrath fell. The ultimate outcome of rejecting God is being rejected by God. The owner of the vineyard returns, probably with an army, and he destroys the evil tenants. Now, that's what happened in 70 AD, but that's also what will happen at the end of time. God's not done dealing out judgment. And we can actually look at this in a couple different ways. First, we can look at this individually. Everyone's time on earth will run out. Everyone in this room, everyone beyond these walls, everyone has a limited amount of time on earth to respond to God's call, but that time is limited. It will run out. For those who reject God and die without him, they will face his judgment. They will be eternally rejected in hell. Hell is not a topic I like to talk about. It's not a topic I like to think about, but it's nevertheless real. 
It's in God's word. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in God's word. And I would be unfaithful to the word of God and unfaithful to you if I avoided the topic of hell. So here it is. It's real. Jesus calls it a place of torment. And those who reject him go there. When Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, the rich man described himself in agony as he was in the flames. Revelation calls this a place, a lake of fire where the inhabitants are tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen to me. Hell is real. I don't care what our modern enlightened people claim today. I don't care if false teachers like Rob Bell and many others claim that there is no hell. They're wrong, and they're leading people astray. The truth is there is a hell, and people without Jesus go there. It's God's ultimate judgment, the only way out. Hear me, the only way out is faith in Jesus Christ. And each person is responsible for their own choice to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Each person will have to pay the penalty if they reject Jesus. So we look at this individually, but we can look at this worldwide or corporately as well because there's a day coming when ultimate destruction will come against the enemies of God. Christ will return. He told his disciples that he's coming back, and we're waiting for him. That's one of the things that we're doing as Christians. We are waiting for his return. He will come back, and when he does, he will receive his church, and he will punish his enemies. Revelation 19.21 tells us that when Jesus comes, he will slay all his enemies with a sword that comes from his mouth. Just as God spoke the world in creation, he will speak his enemies out of existence. One short battle, and it's done. And then there will be what the Bible calls the final judgment, when Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. And you can read more about this in Matthew 25. And he will say to the sheep, come into eternal life, but he will say to the goats who rejected him, he will say, depart from me forever. What in the world do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that an ultimate judgment is coming? Well, we need to do a couple things. First, my beloved brothers and my beloved sisters in Christ, we need to let this spur us on to live and speak the gospel. If we truly believe that Jesus is the only way to avoid the coming judgment, then we need to let our life and let our words be a witness. I challenge you to pray for, think through, and take every opportunity to proclaim the good news. Yes, it may cost you something. At the least, a weird look. Big deal. Maybe you'll be ridiculed. Maybe if the world continues, and I believe it will, if the world continues to go downhill, maybe we will see real persecution here in America. I don't know. But think about this. Can you endure a few years of ridicule knowing an eternity of heavenly bliss with your Savior is coming? If you live to 80, 90, 100, beyond, and you're ridiculed because your belief in Jesus, and then you spend eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ, is that a fair trade? Live and speak the gospel. Secondly, what do we do with this coming judgment? 
Let it satisfy the offense that you feel inside at all the injustice of the world. Let it satisfy the offense. You feel it and I feel it. Of all the injustice that's happening in the world, let the knowledge that final judgment is coming satisfy that offense. Israel is right now at war because a cowardly group of terrorists ruthlessly bombed them. A man in Maine walks into a bowling alley and opens fire, killing 20-plus people. There's political corruption. There's corporate greed. Our police can't even rely on being supported by our own government. Where is the justice in all that? At least the serval cat was finally recaptured. I mean, goodness. That's one thing we can claim. But you know, Jesus will rectify all the injustice that has ever been done in this world. No one ultimately gets away with evil. No one. All will be held accountable. And if we think about that, on the one hand, it's terrifying to think of those who have to answer to God for their crimes. But on the other hand, justice, true, righteous, divine justice will be served. He will right every wrong. All the wrongs that you read about in the news, he will right. All the wrongs that you see happen around you in your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, he will right. Every wrong that happens to you, he will right. There's a reason why Jesus says, vengeance is mine. Let that knowledge satisfy the offense within you. Jesus tells us the owner will come and destroy the tenants. And then he makes this small phrase. It's easy to overlook. He says this, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Everybody see that? Who are the others? That is a reference to those who receive the new covenant. When Jesus died and rose again, he made the temple obsolete. We just talked about that. He's made the temple obsolete, and he establishes a new covenant of worship. He establishes a new community of faith comprised of Jews and Gentiles. No more segregation. And they don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to go to a temple. He is the temple. Jesus goes on to say, have you not read in the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 118, one of the Psalms that would have been on the minds of all the Jews at the time, because interestingly enough, this is a Hillel Psalm that they sung at Passover. From Psalm 118 came the text we read when the people were praising Jesus as he entered Jerusalem in chapter 11. Jesus is the stone, the stone that the builders rejected. The builders are the religious leaders. They reject Jesus, but he comes the cornerstone. Now, what's that? Well, the cornerstone could be one of two things. It's a little unclear, but the cornerstone could be a reference to the stone that sets the foundation of the building, make sure it's square, make sure it's good to go, 
or it could be a reference to the keystone, which is at the arch of the building and connects all other stones. Either way, what Jesus is saying here is, I am the stone that all the other stones depend on. The stone that was rejected by the temple leaders becomes the cornerstone for the new temple that resides in the hearts of the believers. Jesus is, and I was reminded of this by a brother this week, Jesus is the new and better temple. God used the rejection of Jesus to do a work that literally changes everything previously known about worship and salvation. This is marvelous in our eyes. That God would take the rejection of his son and do a work of redemption. Wow. Jesus lived a life of rejection. But because of that rejection, Jesus attained the unattainable. He conquered sin and death. He defeated the enemies of God, and he sits now at the right hand of the Father. The truth about rejection is that we are prone to reject God, but he is gracious to forgive. But that the ultimate consequence for rejection is coming. So church, Keep your eyes on Christ. He was rejected, but through that rejection came his work of redemption, and that is marvelous in our eyes. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be despised and rejected. Thank you for taking the shame, the pain, and the death that should have been ours. Jesus, thank you that when we are rejected, we share your rejection, which means we share your victory. Lord, help us to face whatever lies before us tomorrow, this week, and beyond. Help us to face what rejection may come and yet take every opportunity to speak the gospel come what may. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.